Good afternoon. My name is Michael, and I serve as one of the pastors of the church. It's a joy to preach God's word to you this afternoon. The Olympics just finished up. I'm not sure if you watched, but the 100-meter sprint is always of interest to me. We get to see who the fastest person on the entire planet is. Olympians train four years just to run for 10 seconds. During that 10 seconds, you need to run as fast as you can for as hard as you can, as long as you can. There's no pacing, 100% effort for the whole time. A marathon, however, is 26.2 miles. Now I've never run a marathon before, but I've run in a marathon. One year I ran as part of a relay team in the Kansas City Marathon. Five friends of mine, we each ran a different leg of the marathon. I ran the leg from mile 17 to mile 22. So I sat there at mile 17 waiting for about two and a half hours for my friends to finish their sections. When I finally saw my friend turn the corner, I started running. I was excited and I was running fast. All the people around me, keep in mind, had just been running for about two and a half hours. 17 miles. I had run zero. So I began passing groups left and right. I was feeling like a million bucks and I ran faster and faster. After about three miles, I started to cramp. I didn't pace myself. My breathing was heavy. My body started to slow and slowly but surely all those runners I had passed earlier began to pass me. Now I did finish my section of the marathon but it was not pretty at the end. I treated those first few miles like a sprint in many ways, and at the end I paid for it. Some of us treat the Christian life like this. We lack a vision for the finish line or for the race as a whole, so we sprint for a bit and then we burn out. Or we don't set our expectations for the road ahead, so then we grumble and complain when it's harder than we hoped for. We thought it would be easier. We found that carrying a cross is difficult. Patience is not required in a 100-meter sprint. But the Christian life, friends, is a marathon. Patience and perseverance are mandatory. Now, over the next two weeks, we're taking a detour from the Psalms of Ascent Pastor Mark, in just a few weeks, will return to Psalm 126. But for the next two weeks, we're going to finish the book of James. If you have your Bibles, please turn to James chapter 5. It's in the New Testament, near to the end. If you're following along in your bulletin, it's on page 8. I started preaching through James about a year and a half ago. We have just two sermons left in the book. Let's think for a moment about all that James has taught us. He taught us to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds, because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And after steadfastness has had its full effect on us, we're made whole, mature, lacking nothing. James has also pointed our eyes away from this world to eternity. He said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. 
Like a doctor, James examined our tongues to determine our health. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And like a prophet, James warned us of the coming judgment for all those who say that they have faith, but don't have works also. James has been calling us in five chapters to a single-minded devotion to God. God is single-minded. There's no variation or shadow in him due to change. He shows no partiality. James says we shouldn't either. We shouldn't bless our Lord and then with our tongues curse our brother. We shouldn't waver like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. Once again in our passage today, James points us to eternity and he says, Show me your tongues and I'll tell you if you're ready. Listen as I read James 5, 7 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Friends, let's pray together. O oh, Father of lights, we come to you. In you is no variation or shadow due to change. So we ask you, for that good and perfect gift of your word to bear fruit in our church. And as we hear your word, help us be doers of the word, that we might grow in our devotion to you and to you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Wait for the Lord's return with patience and perseverance. That's the main point of this sermon. Wait for the Lord's return with patience and perseverance. The marathon runner competes with his eyes fixed on the finish line. We run with our eyes fixed on the return of Jesus Christ. And as we wait for his return, James offers us two traits that we need as we wait. The first is patience. Verse 7, be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. Now think of those poor Christians. They're scattered from their homes due to persecution. They're the ones who received James' letter originally. And he had just told their rich oppressors in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, that God heard the cry of the oppressed. God saw the fraud that was committed. And God was coming to judge. All the treasure they accumulated on this earth, that life of luxury they were living, 
that would all be evidence against them on the final day. Now, in our verses, James turns to the poor brothers and sisters. Does he tell them to seek vengeance? Does he urge them to seek justice? Neither. James calls for patience. As we think about patience, let's think about what it means for believers. Patience is a supernatural strength to faithfully wait. It's supernatural in the fact that it's only possible by the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a call to faithfully wait in that the Bible often ties these two words together, even in our very passage. Wait. And notice this call to patience by James is a temporary command in verse 7. Look at verse 7. James says, it's until the coming of the Lord. Until the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus came as Savior first for the salvation of sinners. It's hands down one of the most important events in the history of the world. He came from the Father to die on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He ascended back to the Father. And then he promised to come again. Yet, not as Savior, but as the judge for the condemnation of sinners. We're living in what the Bible calls the last days. It's between the first coming of Jesus Christ and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And during this time period that we're in currently, patience is required. Think of what this meant for the believers. The return of Christ was a comfort for them. It offered a joyful hope that God himself would right every wrong that was committed against them. James didn't want them to seek revenge, but to hope in God's vengeance of the wicked. So brothers and sisters, for us, if you're one of those who are mistreated at work, maybe your wages are withheld, you're abused and exploited, all so that your bosses can get richer, live in luxury. Remember this word, your cries are heard by the Lord of hosts. He hears you. And this is the good news you need. Jesus is coming back. Wait. Pray for that supernatural strength from the Holy Spirit to be patient. Now, if you know someone who's in that situation, it can be easy to think, I need to help get them out of that situation. That should be my first priority. And that could be a good thing. Maybe you could help them think about how to get a new job. Maybe you can provide networking resources. But the greatest help you can give them is not to fix their temporary struggle. It's actually to help them see beyond this life to the one to come, to the fact that Jesus is coming back. Your job is to help them be patient, to wait faithfully. What does it look like to live the patient life? James gives us a picture in verse 7. Friends, if you want to be patient, look at a farmer. Patience doesn't look like ordering a cucumber on Kibson's and getting it a few hours later. Talk to Keshav Dwangan. He's a farmer. He's planted cucumbers. They take 50 to 70 days to grow. Nearly two months. Patience looks like a farmer waiting to harvest his cucumbers. He sows his seed, and then what does he do? He waits. And then he waits. And then he waits a little more. 
The early rains must come, then the late rains, and at the end, that's when he gets the precious fruit of the earth. In verse 8, James repeats the command one more time. Like the farmer, you also be patient. He even adds another command. Establish your hearts. Patience is a heart posture. Our hearts are prone to wander. How easy is it for us to be double-minded in our waiting? On Friday, we are sure that the Lord is coming back. On Saturday, we've altogether forgotten about it. We need strengthening. We need stability. Church, we believe Jesus is coming back. So we need to establish our heart deep in that truth. How are you doing at helping other Christians around you establish their heart, reminding them that Jesus is coming back? The Christian life is a race that we run together. So let's speak of Jesus' return often. Let's remind one another the hope that we have Jesus is coming back. In verse 7, James tells us why we need patience. Look at that last phrase. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. The coming of the Lord is at hand. He's told us, be patient until the Lord's coming. Now he's saying, be patient for the Lord is coming. His return is at hand. He's coming soon. Now it's been 2,000 years. Maybe you're thinking, did James think the Lord was coming soon, but really he was mistaken? Maybe he thought that, and, but it's been so long. How could it be soon or at hand? Listen to the words of Jesus. He said, no one knows that day and that hour. But Jesus also gave us an illustration. He said, a thief doesn't announce what time of night they're coming. They don't say, hey, does midnight work for you? Could I come at that time? When do they come? They surprise you. They come at an unexpected hour. Jesus said, be ready, stay awake, for the hour is one you do not expect. We're to live in light of the second coming because think of it this way. The next great event on God's calendar is the second coming of Jesus Christ. He could be here tomorrow. He could come before I finish this sermon. He's coming soon. So we must remain patient. Before I move to the second point, let's think a bit of the Lord's patience. We're told of God's patience in the days of Noah. Noah actually took a while to prepare the ark. God was patient in that he waited to flood the earth until Noah finished, saving eight people. If you're not a Christian, there's a flood of judgment that's coming soon. But it's not here yet. Could it be that the Lord is being patient toward you, not wishing that you'd perish, but that you should reach repentance? Consider the lives of the Christians in this church. Their very lives, the transformation that's taken place in Jesus Christ, is an example of Christ's perfect patience. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. And he's still patient with us today. Friend, that breath in your lungs, right now, God's patience. This sermon in your hearing, God's patience, 
How will you respond? If you're a suffering Christian, maybe you're tempted to despair and depression. As your pain increases month after month, year after year, it seems there is no end. There is an end coming. You're one day closer to heaven than you were yesterday. And on that day when the king returns, your suffering will turn to glory. You're going to hear that trumpet sound. Your despair will turn to delight. Put on patience and wait for him. Every Christian needs patience. And every Christian by the Holy Spirit will display the patience that God calls us to. So as we wait for the Lord's return, we need patience. And in verses 9 through 12, we see we also need perseverance. Perseverance. Look at verses 9 and 12. As we consider what perseverance looks like for the Christian, James gives us two negative commands, both associated with the danger of a double tongue. Look at verse 9. He warns of grumbling. Verse 12, he warns of swearing. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. Think of all the one another's in the Bible. There's over 30 of them. Not one is grumble against one another. Here we have the opposite. Don't grumble. Don't grumble against the members of your church, James says. Conflict and complaining in the church can often be a product of poverty and persecution. Think about it. Pressure, hard times drive us to look at one another, start to accuse one another. But we need to remember James' words from chapter 4. He asked, what causes conflict among you? And then he answered it. He says, it's that your passions are at war within you. Grumbling is a serious sin. So there's so many stories in the Bible of grumbling. One I can think of is the Exodus. On the heels of the greatest deliverance in the Old Testament, deliverance from slavery to Egypt, the Israelites weren't filled with gratitude. They're filled with grumbling. Do you know why they were upset? They missed the meat and bread of Egypt. They were hangry. In Numbers 14, they grumble again. This time the Lord judges them. A whole generation is forbidden from entering the promised land. And the leaders, the ones who caused everyone else to grumble, they're immediately cut off. Grumbling is a dangerous sin. Some people are looking for reasons to grumble. They find complaints when there's nothing to see. Spurgeon said these people are like those who make a mouse into an elephant. Christian, could that be you? Are you guilty of grumbling? Are you a professional fault finder? Are you an expert in the weaknesses of your friends? Are you a constant complainer? Sometimes we call it venting. I think James would call it grumbling. And this is easy to do. We start with a prayer request. Hey, would you pray for so-and-so? We finish off with a grumble. Now, if you're a member of Covenant Hope Church, maybe you're thinking about membership at this church, you need to know that you will be sinned against. I can promise you that. Don't go to another brother when somebody sins against you and share what happened with, against you. That's, that's grumbling. Instead, go to your brother or sister who has sinned against you Gently, lovingly, bring your fault 
and seek reconciliation. Grumbling is taking employment under Satan. It's doing his work for him. He's the accuser of the brethren. Grumbling is also taking a stand against God. We're made in his image. Think about the danger of grumbling in the local church. Grumbling spreads like gangrene. It's highly contagious. You complain to me about a church member, I realize I have a few complaints too. I share them with you. We both agree. We're so thankful that we're not like that other person. What does God think of this? If our words are empty of grace, yet filled with grumbling, can we expect to find grace on that day when Jesus comes? Friends, if you've been guilty of grumbling, let me encourage you to confess it to a brother or sister in the church. Ask a friend after the service, somebody you know well, and ask them, am I a grumbler? Put it off. Walk in the goodness of the gospel where we don't grumble against one another, but we're grateful for one another. Where we don't complain about one another, but we pray for one another. If you've been a habitual grumbler through the gospel, through belief in what Jesus did for you on the cross, you can become a chronic encourager. Make that your ministry in this church. Grumbling is a danger of the double tongue. So is swearing. Look at verse 12. My brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. The double tongued man says yes, but he means no. He says no, but he means yes. He swears he'll be there. You can count on him. Then he doesn't show up. He says, as God is my witness, I will do this and that. Then he fails to fulfill his promise. James, when he references swearing, he's not talking about curse words. He's talking about oaths. And there's two key texts that are kind of the background for this verse. The first is Leviticus 19. James has quoted it already six times in the book of James. Leviticus 19.12 says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. In the Old Testament law, oaths weren't necessarily forbidden, but invoking God's name to do something, and then not following through, was forbidden. So as we think about Leviticus 19, it helps us see we need to be trustworthy. If we say something, we need to do it. But the second text that James is referencing is from the Sermon on the Mount, from his older brother Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is quoted 19 times in the book of James. In Matthew 5, Jesus goes a step further than Leviticus. He says, hey, you've heard Leviticus 19.12, then he quotes it. Then he says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all. No oaths. Now, they're not so much concerned with taking an oath, an oath, say, in a court of law, or maybe you have to take an oath for legal purposes. They're concerned with our truthfulness and our consistency of speech. We should be so consistent that when we say yes, we need no oath to support it because we're so trustworthy that our words speak for themselves. Think about pressures at work. Do they ever lead you to make promises that you can't keep? Is your speech 
inconsistent with your actions? Do you say you'll be somewhere only to bail when something else comes along? Parents, can your children depend on you when you say you're going to do something? Christians should be the most dependable people, the most trustworthy people on the planet. And when we model consistent speech, we're actually modeling God, reflecting God to the watching world. God has never said yes when he meant no. God can swear by his own name because there is no darkness in him, only light. And notice with both of these, swearing and grumbling, how they're followed up with the same reason. Look at verse 9. James says, So that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now look at verse 12. He says, So that you may not fall under condemnation or judgment. The coming of the Lord, it was comfort for these believers, but it was also a reason for self-examination. They were slave, if they were slaves to sin, of grumbling and swearing, James is warning them, God's judgment will be for you. So we, friends, we must examine ourselves. Maybe you profess to be a Christian, but your words look more like the world than they look like Jesus. Is it possible that you are one of those who say you have faith, but there's no works? Friends, flee from these sins so that you may not be judged. But what does it look like to persevere? Earlier, James showed us the farmer. He said, if you want to see patience, look at the farmer. In verses 10 and 11, James says, look at the prophets. The prophets teach us how to persevere. Look at verse 10. He says, the prophets are an example of suffering and patience. Those two things together. Suffering, patience. What did the prophets do? James says they spoke in the name of the Lord. And because of that, they were persecuted for the name of the Lord. We learn here that following Jesus and suffering for Jesus go hand in hand. If you need to learn this lesson, go read about the prophets. Pick up your Old Testament. Learn about their lives. Read how Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. Learn from Jeremiah, who was beaten and put in stocks for speaking on behalf of God. These were men, the author of Hebrews tells us, whom the world was not worthy, yet they stood the test and they were blessed. We get another picture of perseverance in Job. Read the book of Job with a friend and find a man who is steadfast in the Lord. One day, as Mark said earlier, he lost his health, his wealth, even his own children. On that day, he worshiped God and said, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's perseverance. A friend texted me. Those very words, that verse, a couple weeks ago, on a day of incredible pain and sorrow. That was an example to me of steadfastness, of perseverance. You see, perseverance isn't acting like you're not affected by suffering. 
Perseverance is clinging to the Lord in your suffering. Like Job, crying out to God, asking for justice, and yet declaring with faith when all you see is darkness, I know that my Redeemer lives. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. O suffering Christian, hear the stories of the prophets and know that suffering is not the end of your story. We've read the end of the book. We know how it turns out for us in the end. But even more than hearing these stories, James says, we've seen why the Lord sends suffering. Look at verse 11. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. God has a purpose. He has a goal, an end in your suffering. I can't tell you the specifics. I do not know what the Lord wants to teach you in your suffering, but I can tell you that he's compassionate and that he's merciful. God's people, church, hear this comfort from the book of James. God's heart is compassion towards you. You may never understand your suffering in this life. Job was actually never told why he went through all the suffering he went through. But you must understand how deep you are in God's love for you. Friends, drink deep of this doctrine. God is compassionate. He loves you. Let the floodgates of his love wash over you and be renewed. And God's heart is mercy towards you, Christian. Mercy that never comes to an end. Mercy that is new every morning. Name a sin you've committed. Mercy. Name a suffering you've experienced. Mercy. Name a situation you're stuck in. Mercy. 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 See it all around you. See it on the cross. Where God's compassion and mercy purchased your salvation. As Jesus took the judgment you deserved in your place. See it in the resurrection. Where Jesus conquered the sting of death. The reign of Satan. The chain of sin. Paul says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christians, see it in your suffering, where God is producing steadfastness, that you might be whole, complete, mature, lacking in nothing. Christian, persevere. Remain steadfast. You've seen the Lord's purpose, compassion, and mercy. If you're not a Christian, James' word to you is that the judge is standing at the door. Today, you can receive compassion and mercy in Jesus Christ. But on that day, you'll only receive judgment and condemnation. Oh friend, trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Let that day when he returns be a day of delight for you, not dread. As we wait on the Lord's return, we must wait, James says, with patience and perseverance. The Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. But it will soon be over. The return of the King is imminent. 
So let's say with the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Let's say with the author of Hebrews, we run with endurance the race that is set before us. And let's be patient, steadfast, for the Lord is at hand. The last words of Jesus in the Bible, surely I am coming soon. And we say with glad and expectant hearts, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray.